Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast episode. I am your host, Amanda Farmer. I am thrilled to be here with you this week. I am bringing you Bernadette and David Jansen. Bernadette has been renovating for over 30 years and is the founder of The School of Renovating. David is a registered architect in New South Wales and Victoria and has delivered multi-award winning projects such as Barangaroo House in his role at Collins and Turner Architects. David is now co-directing an architectural practice in Surrey Hills, Sydney, Thurlow Studio Architects with a focus on delivering architectural services to renovators. Together, Bernadette and David have negotiated a lot of the common problems when it comes to apartment renovations, and that is indeed what we are discussing on today's podcast. I will take you over there very shortly. Before I do, I want to make sure that you are registered for the Shared Space Summit. It is all happening online from the 15th to the 18th of September. This is the world's first online summit for strata property owners. Over four days, I am bringing you nine world-leading experts on community, property and law. Last week on the podcast, episode number 228, I shared some details about the Shared Space Summit, including some of the guest experts you'll be hearing from. Head back, have a listen to that episode if you haven't already. At the time I am recording this, we have well over 500 people registered for the summit. Amazing. I know so many of you have told me that you are sharing it with your neighbors, your friends, your clients, encouraging them to register. Thank you. I am thrilled that we're going to reach so many people and help them face the challenges that this new world is presenting to those of us living in and serving strata communities. The summit is free, but you do need to be registered to get access to the summit sessions. Do that over at yourstrataproperty.com.au forward slash summit. I am so looking forward to spending summit week with you. I'm going to take you over now to my chat with Bernadette and David Jansen. Enjoy. Bernadette and David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks, Amanda. Good to be here. It is a pleasure to have you both. And you very graciously, generously reached out to me after you had a listen to episode 221, which was Rena and I having a chat about how to avoid a renovation disaster in an apartment. And we spoke particularly about 
what it is that owners need to do when it comes to seeking approval from not just their strata committee or their owners corporation, but from their local council as well. And Rena and I were saying there's often confusion for a strata committee. We don't know what we don't know. What approvals do owners need for what work? And you each generously reached out and offered your expertise as uh, you are. Do you want to let us know, uh, Bernadette, a little bit about your background with the School of Renovation? and your podcast as well? Oh, yeah. So I've been renovating for over 30 years and basically I mainly do my own projects, but I also work with women who are trying to improve their financial position with renovating. And I do have a podcast called She Renovates and that's really all about the trials and tribulations and joys of renovating. And, you know, one of the side effects of being a renovating family is your poor children get sucked into it. <laughs> and so as a result, David's ended up following an architecture career and I'll let you jump in there. Yep. Okay. So I'm a, I'm a registered architect in New South Wales and Victoria, um, having spent the past um, six and a bit years working in a high-end architectural practice in Sydney, Collins and Turner. Um, I am now setting up a practice which is more focused on helping renovators deliver their projects. So obviously I've been working on projects with um, with mum and the family for, for quite some time now. So, um, and having done a renovation of my own, I've, I've you know, been through some of the challenges involved firsthand and, um, and yeah, looking to, looking to assist some renovators with that process. Yes, and we do have some unique challenges when it comes to renovating apartments, and I know you're each well across these. Let's start here. What kinds of things can apartment owners do to improve their investment, improve their lifestyle? What are the common things that you're seeing clients do that you've done yourselves with apartments? Usually the first thing that we look at is whether you can open up the kitchen to the living room because Modern life is much more comfortable if you've got that more open plan scenario. And I guess then after that, it's looking at the bathrooms. Often the laundry is an opportunity to convert a laundry into a bathroom and possibly put the laundry as a European laundry in the kitchen. They're probably the big ticket items in terms of adding value and also adding comfort you know, often with a two-bed apartment, if you can get that second bathroom in, it means that you can have, you know, like two couples living in the home with, you know, independence. But, of course, you know, we really negotiated in our early days, would often go to do that and we'd talk to the owners' corporation and or the strata manager and say, what do we need? And they didn't know. And, you know, often we'd see that renovations had preceded us that had gone through without the correct permissions and approvals. So, so fortunately, because we have David, who is, you know, an, an expert, we have the opportunity to get it sorted out. So do you want to talk about what's required Particularly, you know, when you're opening up, say, the kitchen to the living room for start? Yeah, sure. I mean, the first thing, the obvious one is really structure, um, to know whether whether structurally it's feasible to remove a wall because, um, you know, a lot of people would come to us and say, oh, the wall's not load-bearing because it's lightweight, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not load-bearing. You can knock mm. and know that it's plasterboard, that um, a plasterboard wall can be built of timber frame and can actually be structural. So... Having a structural engineer to take a look at it first is, is the first obvious one. From there, it's, it's I mean, the approval is really, really one of the key things that gets skipped 
um, by we find a lot of a lot of people that are renovating without that knowledge. Mm. And we often have clients come to us and say somebody else in the building has renovated and they didn't have a complying development certificate. So why why do we need one? Or we hear it from builders all the time that they wouldn't do this work with a complying development certificate. But but you know it is reasonably categorically required um, when you're when you're taking out a wall. It's sort of it's there's a state environmental planning policy, and I won't bore you with all of the details. But that's oh no, we like detail. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get in then. Um, there's a there's a state environmental planning policy called exempt and complying development, which is the the document that sets out what can be done under exempt, so it doesn't require a complying development certificate or a CDC and what is complying so it can be done with a complying development certificate. And if the work doesn't land within those two brackets, then it typically needs a development application. Okay. So you're saying, David, specifically the removal of structural walls in an apartment building, even though you're not affecting the external appearance, it doesn't seem like major work, perhaps in the eyes of the owner. It is most likely, or it is always the case that you need some kind of council approval, whether that's a DA or a complying development certificate. We need a complying development certificate. Now, um, some properties you can't get the complying development certificate for, for for instance, if it's in a heritage listed building. So there are there are situations where a CDC wouldn't get you over the line with with removing the wall for a kitchen. Mm-hmm. There are a whole raft of situations. So it's, I mean, it's quite we're speaking quite broadly here, but it's um, obviously every situation can be quite different depending on the building and and um, specifically what's being proposed. But typically, a compliance development certificate is what you'd need for that kind of work. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now, in relation to structural walls in particular, before we leave off that item, my understanding from past experience being involved in cases where structural walls have been removed without approval, owners sometimes say, as you've alluded to there, David, it's not structural, it's it's lightweight, it's not, it's not bearing the load of the building, for example. But what I've come to learn working with engineers when there's disputes about this is that it is often relevant what is going on in the apartment directly above where you want to remove the structural or non-structural or load-bearing or non-load-bearing wall. And it is sometimes relevant whether the apartment above has removed the same wall or whether uh, they still have that wall in place and therefore the wall below, the one you want to remove, is a wall that is bearing a load. It is bearing the load above it. So have you come across that before where you've had to say to clients, well, maybe we can take it out, maybe we can't, let's have a look at what's going on above you? Yeah, look, we would never, we wouldn't take any wall out regardless of whether we believe it to be load bearing or not without having a structural engineer sign it off. Yeah, They would usually prepare what's called a a statement of structural adequacy and that effectively says, yes, this wall can be removed and it will have no no impact on the structural capacity of the building or they will say this will have an impact on the building. We need to to design a structure which is a a structural alteration to it, for instance, putting a beam in to take it. And that is definitely something for our strata committees to be across when you're looking at bylaws to approve this kind of work or you're drafting what you might call a global bylaw that deals with major renovation work to be very clear that if an owner wants to remove these walls, then they should be providing you with a structural engineer's report. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I mean, it's just, I just think for peace of mind and for, because we're not, I'm certainly not a structural expert. I've seen a lot of walls being taken out. Um, <laughs> I'm, but I'm, but I'm, I'm no structural expert um, and if I'm not willing to tap on a wall and say that categorically that's load-bearing or not or it's going to have no impact on the building, then I don't think that too many other people should be too comfortable with making that call. Absolutely. The fireproofing of beams is one issue that really um, often gets overseen um, and 
in a class two building, which most apartment buildings are, it means you've got two dwellings on top of one another, two or more. When you put a beam in that's doing something structural, supporting a wall above, you have to have a fire rated because under the building code, because otherwise if there's a fire in your apartment, that beam can fail and effectively the wall comes down. And so it's a really kind of basic issue with the with the BCA that just often gets overseen. And so a beam will go in, but it won't be fire rated often. Okay. Now you mentioned there Bernadette bathrooms is another popular one. We definitely see that all the time as uh, people living in these apartments, lawyers advising on bylaws that are needed and strata managers trying to manage the whole process. Waterproofing Bernadette, that is a bone of contention often. Basically, and you would know that when an owner decides to take the tiles off a bathroom wall, they then are required to create a bylaw usually, that then makes them responsible for the ongoing maintenance because the issue is if that if the new waterproofing gives way, then the, uh, the owner's corporation doesn't want to be wearing the responsibility of that. So then that requires, that's considered a major renovation. You and I talked about this recently. So for us, most of our renovations we sell, so we're not having to live with the consequences <laughs> of that responsibility. So something that we do, and this was actually David's um, initiative, which I think is worth considering, is actually double waterproofing. Uh-huh. Usually we just waterproof under the floor topping. So as soon as we strip out and re-render the walls, we'll do the waterproofing and then the floor topping goes down and then the tiling happens. But now waterproof under, then do the floor topping and then come back and waterproof over so that there's a double waterproofing, just belt and braces because what you don't want is, you know, the new owner or if you're holding on to it, you having to pay for your neighbour's damage because the waterproofing hasn't held. So. Yes. And do you find that when the strata committee or the owners corporation finds out, if they do at all find out, that you are double waterproofing, that you're going above and beyond, do you get a certain reaction from a committee? No, we don't tell them. We just do it. Good uh, on you. Yeah. I think that, um, I don't know, it's just something that we like to have some integrity around. You know, mm. we do renovations that really take the home into the coming decades without as you know with as few problems as possible Mm, well there's something there for our committees to think about perhaps they might want to insert that kind of requirement into a bathroom renovation process and the laundry conversion into a second bathroom I've seen that proposed in my own building very recently are there concerns about Plumbing, um, Rena and I spoke specifically about this, moving the laundry to the kitchen to create this European laundry. We talked about that in episode 221. Uh, what are the things we need to be careful of there? It's always a bit of a tricky one. Um, the It really comes down to, to the building code. So the building code sets out what's required for a laundry and what's required for a wet area in terms of, in terms of what facilities are provided um, and how they function in terms of do you need to have a laundry sink and do you need to have a, a washing machine and drying um, facilities? The thing with the building code is that, and I'm, I'm not an expert in the building code, um, obviously we deal with it a lot on every single project, so I'm reasonably familiar, but I, I should just caveat that, that I'm not a BCA expert. There are people that are. But it's, it's really a performance-based document. So it does specify certain things that should be done if you are what's called deemed to satisfy the provisions which are very prescriptive and they will give you how many metres, lineal metres of washing line per apartment need to be provided. But if you can if you can meet the objectives of that 
requirement, you don't necessarily need to tick off the metric requirements of it. So needless to say, um, if you're building a laundry into a, into a kitchen, it needs to be built in a way that's water resisting. And that's what the BCA says as well. So the performance requirement will tell you that it needs to resist water ingress, obviously, into your neighbour's property um, and generally water damaging, the, damaging that, that carcass or however it's been constructed. Mm. Important to know, and I imagine that's something that can often be overlooked, perhaps by owners and perhaps by committee members who say, okay, yeah, that's fine, moving the laundry into the kitchen, that sounds about right, and not actually mandating the requirement for waterproofing in that kitchen area, because usually a kitchen doesn't have any waterproofing. Am I right about that? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it's not, it's not required to have waterproofing under the BCA either. And to be quite specific about it, the BCA doesn't really call up waterproofing per se for a laundry either. It says it says that it needs to be water resisting. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of a there's a slight difference there in how that's how that's described. Now again, as I say, I'm not an expert, and I would not, I wouldn't recommend that somebody specifically didn't waterproof a laundry. Um, I really think that that needs to be a, a fairly robust environment from a water perspective. Um, mm. Is a bit a bit of a grey area in that sense. So if an owner's corporation was wanting to make sure that they headed off any problems at all. They'd probably require that there was a floor waste there and waterproofing, and that would probably be problematic in most renovations because putting a floor waste where there isn't one can be tricky, Mm. whereas if you're doing it in a wet area, particularly a bathroom, you'll notice that bathrooms often have a lower ceiling space so what they do, the buildings do, is they stack the bathrooms one on top of the other and they have a space in between for the plumbing. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to put a an extra floor waste in there, you could do it, but that doesn't happen in kitchens, so you don't have that space to do it. And the other thing that David said that technically a European laundry is required to have a sink, you know, uh-huh. according to the code, mm-hmm. but when you're talking about deemed to satisfy, I'm guessing that the kitchen sink is is how they get around that. Well, it does actually say in the deemed to satisfy provisions that you can't use the kitchen sink as your laundry sink. But I think that when it comes to a kind of qualitative assessment of are you providing equivalent equivalent services, mm. uh, obviously we've done it on a lot of projects and we have on occasions put a secondary laundry sink in when a client specifically wanted it, but uh, it's often not done. Mm. Uh, and it's generally it's always signed off by a by a certifier, um, and I think that what that comes down to is just that we haven't reduced the number of sanitary facilities and the number of, of basins or sinks that are provided within the within the unit. Yep. And on that basis, you could still use one of them as a laundry sink um, in the event that you needed to. Uh, now, as I say, that that is a that's a sort of high level qualitative assessment that that I think that a certifier would make, but. That comes down to those deemed to satisfy provisions, or the um, or the sort of qualitative um, performance based requirement. And the yep. performance based requirement is that you have laund- facilities that you can use for your laundry. Okay. Well, there is a fair bit there for our committees to be thinking about when people are approaching them wanting to do this kind of work with their bathroom, with their laundry. Uh, what about the conversion of bedrooms, constructing walls to create a bedroom out of a studio maybe or to create more bedrooms. It's something that I have seen becoming more common actually, I have to say. Uh, It could just be the nature of the (laughs) inquiries that I'm getting these days. But do you have clients who do that and what's involved in that kind of work? 
We have done conversions of studios to one bedders. We've mm-hmm. done it, obviously we've had done it under compliant development and had it certified. However, once you start, so technically speaking, you're not creating any more bedrooms. Mm. But once you start increasing the bedroom numbers, that's when it gets interesting in the law. <laughs> and I'll just let David speak to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so uh, we haven't we haven't done one in a long time uh, where we've added a bedroom in effectively. And in my understanding of where the complying development code currently sits, um, is that it specifies that a bedroom can't be added under the code. Mm-hmm. So I would need to put it on a project-by-project project basis towards a, a certifier. And the certifier is really the, the person who, who signs that off and who um, says categorically that, that you know, this can be done under the code or this can't be done under the code. So they're yeah. really the best person to, to go to on that basis. Um, but my understanding is that it would require a development application. Yes, and I imagine there's a difference between creating a bedroom out of some kind of empty space, a living area, perhaps an open area or splitting a large bedroom in two and closing off a room like a dining room or a study that was not otherwise officially a bedroom and turning it into a bedroom just by closing in the the door area, for example. But absolutely something for owners to be really aware of. We can't simply go throwing up walls in apartment buildings and creating bedrooms without checking in with the council and absolutely checking in with your owner's corporation. I have a few uh, upset committees on my books at the moment when it comes to these types of renovations. David's theory is, and I agree with him, when you increase the capacity of a home as in uh, the number of bedrooms, usually that requires a council contribution to be paid. Uh Uh-huh. And I think that might be why that law is as it is, that you are required to get a development application. Well, yeah, I mean, every council is different in how they calculate their contributions. Some of them do it on a on a basis of an apartment so or a basis of a unit. If you add a unit, you need to pay a contribution. Some of them do it on the basis of a bedroom. Some mm-hmm. have different bases as well. So that, that could be a part of the reason why that's in there. Yeah. The other thing to be very conscious of is that your building may have an occupancy limits bylaw, which means that your apartment is restricted to only having a certain number of adults living in there, and that's on a per-bedroom basis. And when we calculate the per-bedroom basis, we must look at the original original layout as approved for development. So if you're thinking about adding more bedrooms and throwing some uh, tenants in there and making some money, investor owners, be very careful about that, both with your council and making sure that your owner's corporation doesn't have an occupancy limits bylaw that would prevent you from increasing the number of residents allowed. And I guess just to add on a, on a really kind of practical note, if people are looking to do that, there are two ways that you could go about determining whether that's that's feasible or not. One is to speak to a duty planner at council. So that's someone at council who you can speak to over the desk and discuss your renovation plans with them and they'll tell you what is or isn't required for your, your property approval-wise. The other is to speak to a certifier, so a principal certifying authority, a PCA, and they can tell you whether it can be done under the Compliant Development Code or not. That would be the way forward if you wanted to wanted to look at, at whether that's feasible for your property because, as I say, it is different for, for every property depending on its requirements, yeah. Yep, excellent. And you don't want to get too far down the planning path only to realise it's never going to happen. 
All right. Now, what are your tips, Bernadette and David, when it comes to actually doing the renovation? Uh, we've got all the approvals that we need. We are ready and raring to go. There are obviously things to think about like access and how you get your contractors and their materials in and out. You guys are well experienced at handling this for clients. What kind of things should owners be thinking of before they commence their work? Okay. So um, the first thing that we do is we actually measure up the lift and see if it can fit a sheet of jipcock in it or, you know, because you've got lots of heavy material being transported in and making sure that it can fit. That makes a massive difference. Like, you know, you can imagine lugging a huge slab of Caesar stone up five flights of stairs, you know, can be tricky. Also, when you're looking at, you know, opening up the kitchen living area, that requires a beam. Will that fit in the lift or are you going to have to bring a crane in? Yep. And that's happened on, you know, like many occasions. So it's a cost and there are requirements around preparing for that. So that's the first thing. Um, the next thing is how you're going to protect the common areas because, you know, with tradesmen trooping in and out, they can make a real mess of it. If the building has curtains for the lift, that's wonderful because that really helps with the protection of the lift. Also, you know, the hallways coming to and from the apartment, we use a thing called sticky drop sheet so it doesn't travel, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's like contact really so that, you know, you protect that area. In most properties, apartment buildings are required to pay a bond. That can be quite a few thousand dollars and so if you don't leave it as you found it, um, you, can, you can have to pay some money to have it repaired. Now the third thing is considering your neighbour's properties. So I've actually had this where during demolition, tiles started falling off the neighbour's bathroom. Next door, oh no. And so that's something that we are very careful about now. So if we, I would actually, if you can, visit your neighbours and look at what's on the other side of the wall that you're taking tiles off. Because if it's looking like that may be fragile, generally what I'd do is I'd talk to the tiler about whether they need to come off, whether they're sound enough to go over. We've done that before. But just being really mindful that there can be implications. The other thing is in older buildings, often um, the services are embedded in the walls. So Mm. being um, really mindful of that. I did have one instance. I probably shouldn't own up to this, but I will. (laughs) Where the demolition guys drilled, well, they were chipping away at the tiles and they went straight through the hot water supply to 48 apartments. Yep, I've seen it happen before. Yeah, I imagine it is frighteningly common. (laughs) Yeah, so, um, but of course, there's really no way around that. You know, you've got, you just need to be really, really careful and, and make sure that you, you know, do it as gently as you can. We also find that in newer buildings, like 20-year-old buildings, my plumber will say to me, I want you to tell me where I'm going to drill for this shower assembly. Right. If I go through a pipe, I want it to be your fault and not mine. I'm like, oh, great. But anyhow, so it's quite a common thing. Um, And then, of course, the next thing is the noise for the neighbours. That can be very disruptive. And I guess the main thing to be as considerate as you can, like I try and what I do, visit the neighbours before we start and find out what's going on for them. So in terms of their hours of work, so hopefully you can sort of work with that. Mm. 
and sort of get in and get out as quickly as possible. Like basically the bathroom is what makes the renovation that determines the length of time because of the wet trays. But generally speaking, you should be able to get in and get out within four weeks if you are intentional and organised. Mm. I think that's the best thing you can do for your neighbours. So they're my tips. Have you got any more to add? The only thing that um, for me I always come back to them recommending to my clients that are sort of managing the process themselves is just to keep a really watertight paper trail of everything. So have a good document that you're using when you're scoping for mm. each of the trades and then make sure you get certificates when you're done with each of the trades, regardless of whether your certifier is asking for it or your strata is asking for it. Make sure absolutely for anything that needs to comply with the building code so that you have a record of what they've done and you have a certificate for it having been done to the code. Yes, and a good hint there for committees to be making sure that they are asking for these things. And if there is a bylaw because it is major work, it's a bathroom involving waterproofing, then you've inserted a condition in the bylaw that the owner must provide these certifications upon completion. And I always say, and a right for you guys as committee members to go in and inspect, go in and have a look. If hard flooring is going down, have an opportunity to go in and have a look at the underlay, at the acoustic insulation that's going down before the floors go on top so you can be satisfied that it is all in accordance with what you thought you approved. These projects, as I'm sure you know better than I do, Bernadette and David can be messy. What should our owners and their trades be doing when it comes to managing waste? Okay, so generally when we're writing the scopes for projects in apartments, we basically say to the trades, you need to take away your waste with you. But, you know, that just never happens, you know. (laughs) Try and police it, but you do end up with waste. And putting a skip in the on-site is not really an option. So basically how we manage it is we dedicate a room for stockpiling of the waste. Like obviously during demolition it goes on the day that demo is done, but as the project goes on we nominate a room uh, for stockpiling the waste and then we bring in a service and they come up in their suit with their sulo bins, come up the lifts, they load it all up and they take it away. So they come, say, once every, probably about three times during an apartment reno. And it means that you haven't got that skip sitting in the car park and with everyone else spilling it, because that's what usually happens. Yeah. So true. And mm. just a much better operational. Certainly in Sydney, we've got lots of options for those services and it's just a much more practical way of dealing with it. Mm. And a good question for our committees to be asking owners, how are they going to be dealing with waste and are they imagining that a skip bin is going to be in the car park but nobody's asked the committee if they could do that or told them it's on the way? And the other thing I guess that renovators should know is, and they probably do, but I'll mention it anyhow, is the hours of work. So your compliant development will um, have conditions but also the building, of course, will have hours where work is allowable and you need to respect that. Mm, Absolutely. I think that communication, as you said earlier, Bernadette, with your neighbours, letting them know, A, that the work is happening. The number of times uh, I've seen work just go ahead, nobody communicated. I'm sure so many listeners have experienced that. Um, Knowing whether they're shift workers, whether they've got a new baby, whether uh, they have an important call happening at 11am on Tuesday when you could simply down tools for 10 minutes and let that happen. That communication is really going to be key to having a smoother renovation and I think if you know the noise is coming and you know it's only for two days or maybe it's for a week but at least you've been told it makes it more bearable does definitely yeah so and I think also like um just even just taking a gift to your neighbors maybe a box of chocolate that just that 
I guess uh, we always feel better about things if we know that we've been considered. Yeah. I think that's the important thing and opening up the communication. So, yeah. Yeah. And at some point, everybody would like to improve their property and you never know if your neighbour's doing it this year, you might be doing it in a couple of years' time. Everybody gets their turn, I say. I live in a beautifully renovated apartment and so I'm always uh, try to be as generous and as understanding as possible when someone else in my building is renovating. But yeah, there are definitely some really great tips there, both for owners and for committees to make sure those renovations can happen as smoothly as possible and in compliance with the law. That always helps. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Bernadette and David, for spending time demystifying some of that for us today. Is there anything that you wanted to leave us with or add that we haven't got to yet that you think our apartment renovators really need to know? I guess the main thing is to uh, spend plenty of time planning. So often there's a race to get started. Mm -hmm. The documentation, how well your project is documented in terms of your, you know, certificates, but also with your trades, you know, your scopes of work and your um, tender documents, that will really help you. If you've got that well documented, that will really help the job go smoothly. Thanks so much, Amanda. We really appreciate the opportunity. No worries at all. Happy renovating. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today?